Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 33 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm privileged to welcome international best-selling author Robert Gant as my featured guest. A former Navy pilot and captain for both Pan Am and Delta, Gant is an expert on the history of commercial aviation. He's the author of 16 titles on military and aviation themes, with nearly half a million books in print in 13 languages. Gant's 1991 book, China Clipper, The Age of the Great Flying Boats, and his 1995 title, Sky Gods, The Fall of Pan Am, offer an inside look at the history of this now-defunct, fabled airline. And today we're going to talk about both the great historic success and the eventual sad decline of Pan American World Airways, or Pan Am, and most importantly, how this one airline forever changed the face of both flight and international travel. Gant joins us from Daytona Beach, Florida. Bob, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You write in Sky Gods that Pan Am had been the first to fly the Pacific, first across the Atlantic, first around the world, and the first American carrier to fly jets. It had more international destinations than any other carrier. So first off, give us a snapshot of what Pan Am was like at the height of her economic prowess and global reach. Pan Am was was an empire. It, it had... Uh it had the biggest fleet of jets, 143 jets. It had the most international routes. In addition, it, it, it had a it owned the Intercontinental Hotel chain, had the world's biggest office building, had a business jet division. Pan Am was was literally the premier airline of the world. It looked like there was a, the, the sky was the limit of all the international airlines. I mean, Pan Am was far and above. Uh, head and shoulders above above all of them, and it literally represented the United States. It was at, at that time the second most recognizable brand logo next to Coca-Cola in the world. At the height of its prowess, even in Stanley Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey, there's even that famous scene of a Pan Am shuttle between the Earth and the Moon. In fact, perhaps it was a marketing scheme. But at one time in the late 1960s, you note in your uh, book. Sky Gods, there was even a prospective passenger list of some 93,005 people who had, si- <laughs> who had yeah. signed up for future Pan Am service to the moon. Uh, yeah. Were, were they serious about this? Was, were, were they- well, a little, a little tongue-in-cheek, but you have to remember in the 60s, particularly the second half of the 60s, space travel was, was a very real thing, and people knew we were going to the moon. Uh, Apollo 8 had already orbited the moon, and uh, the first... Neil Armstrong was about to put his, his f- f- first footstep on the moon surface. And everybody just assumed, of course, America is going into space and soon to follow will be commercial flights. And who else except Pan Am would be the commercial carrier into space? It seemed quite uh, quite possible. And that, that list started with an Austrian journalist who had, uh, just as, a, as a kind of a joke, had tried to make a reservation for a moon flight at a travel agency who sent his request on to Pan Am, and some marketing genius uh, jumped on it and, and started this uh, first moon flights club, which you could sign up and, and uh, get a reservation. for. Uh, and they were even for forecasting that would be in 2000, the year 2000. 
uh, in that 93,000 people, they had, you know, Ronald Reagan was one of them and, and Walter Cronkite and, uh, and, and me, in fact. <laughs> Is that right? So, oh, man. Yeah, that's correct. But you actually joined Pan Am after a stand in the military. You were a Navy pilot, and you have uh, 301 successful takeoffs and landings uh, to your credit from aircraft carriers. That's right. And uh, so you joined in 65. You joined Pan Am in 65. In 65, all the airlines were hiring and expanding. And as a young military pilot right out of the Air Force or the Navy and Marine Corps, you could literally go to work for any of the airlines you wanted. And for I know for me and all my classmates, there wasn't any choice. Pan Am was absolutely the, 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 the premier choice. And Pan Am was kind of snooty about its hiring. Sometimes they, they wouldn't mail you a, uh, even an application form. And then <laughs> Is that in, right? In a, yeah, and, and all the other airlines, even Delta, American, United, they're all hiring, and, and, and uh, they're, they're falling all over themselves to recruit pilots, particularly <laughs> military pilots. Oh, and, Pan, and Pan Am had a sort of haughty, snooty attitude, which uh, <laughs> made it even more attractive to us. But, uh, oh, okay. Uh, when we finally got hired, we felt that we'd really, really crossed the bar there. We we'd, uh, we'd, were among the, uh, the select, the chosen few. And so do you remember what happened the process uh, that led to your hiring and the interview and what was said well it was pretty pretty standard i remember uh sitting in front of a bunch of uh three or four old senior management captains whom we later referred to as sky gods which is the title of my book but and they asked all these questions trying to get you off guard and stuff looked at your logbook and and you know let it be known how 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 fortunate you would be if they if they actually chose you to fly for them. But then there was a physical, and there was a, a thing called a stanine test, which is a big, long thing with a lot of psychological, twisty questions in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple weeks later, you, if, if you were successful, you get a telegram from the chief pilot. Congratulations, you've been chosen. And then give you a class date to start. In my case, I was chosen for a class to start in San Francisco, which is exactly what I wanted. And, uh, I'd also been hired by I've been hired by a couple other airlines, including TWA, but Pan Am was absolutely the creme de la creme. Okay, so let's start with the man responsible for creating the airline, Juan Tripp. You write that uh, aviation had been Tripp's abiding passion since the day in 1909 when his father had taken him to an air race at age 10. He watched Wilbur Wright, who had made three separate flights soaring around the Statue of Liberty. Tripp was hooked, uh, but you write. Uh, that trip was part visionary, part Yankee businessman, and part conniving schemer. <laughs> well, the visionary part was 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 his, his true quality. That was the essential part of one trip. I, I like to compare. Mind you, Trip was was a man in his middle twenties when he started started this empire. Trip was never uh, much into accounting and and and, and uh, you know the bottom line of a business ledger. Nor was he that accomplished technologically, though he was an aviator. He left all that to somebody else. But he had this gift of looking out into the future and seeing what other people deemed impossible, finding a way to make it happen. And he had this tenacity then to make it happen. In that sense, he was a bit uh, of, a, of a conniver. He was a ruthless conniver, actually. And he was very adept at, at, at uh, drawing people into his orbit, especially wealthy, influential people and playing one against the other to get what he wanted. He'd play companies against other companies, or, or uh, in some cases, even countries, 
host countries for his airline against another. He was uh, always a, a well-spoken, smiling gentleman, but he was ruthless. So in other words, he was able to kind of charm his way in to the company of people who had the levers of power and uh, kind of in an innocuous way exact what he wanted from them without revealing his hand too much. Well, that's, that's sort of correct. He, 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 it was a skill, actually, and it, was, it wasn't – he was a Yale graduate, and he'd already surrounded himself with, with very wealthy classmates – uh, Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and Hamilton and Whitney, names like that, right. with money, and they became his his, his initial investors. But he was he, I mean, he was able to draw people like most pointedly the most famous man in the world at the time, Charles Lindbergh, who could have gone to any aviation organization he wanted to, but he was attracted to Pan American, which then barely existed. It was just a little little uh, Pudnock airline jumping over to Cuba. How did he so readily convince uh, Charles Lindbergh to uh, to join forces with Pan Am as a technical? Well, advisor? again, I, I say I think that was part of part of Tripp's innate talent and his charm. When he when he spoke of this vision he had, he's talking about flying four engine airplanes across the ocean at a at a time when they could barely make it to Cuba, and to somebody who had just flown across the ocean, this really sounded glamorous. This is exactly where he wanted to be. This was Charles Lindbergh's uh, swan, his, his song there. That's exactly what he what he wanted to hear. So let's backtrack a bit uh, to before Pan Am. Tripp actually set up his own little airline long before Pan Am. Uh, it's called Long Island Airways. What was that exactly? Again, Tripp was in his early 20s then, and he recruited money and investors from his, his the same Yale classmates, Whitney's and the Vanderbilt's and such, and bought seven ex-Navy float planes, and for two years managed this little airline hopping around the islands on the East Coast, mainly you know out to the Hamptons and out, out to the to, to the uh, to the islands out there where the rich people went, and then down to the Caribbean. After two years, he went broke, and learned a lot, like a lot of young entrepreneurs who their their, their first stab at business doesn't work out too well. But he learned a lot of lessons. Mainly, I think what he learned was that. An aviation enterprise in those days couldn't subsist on its own just by carrying one or two passengers. It had to have some kind of regulatory uh, oversight, meaning subsidy. Subsidy, as we find out later, really translated to airmail and uh, government support. And that was due to the, to the Airmail Act of 1925. But so when exactly was, uh, ironically, one trip did not form Pan Am first. The name already existed under a different organization with some other potential investors. The, the initial, the original Pan Am entity was founded by none other than, than Hap Arnold, the, who became the, uh, the head of the U.S. Army Air Force in World War II, and, and another subsequent general, Carl Spatz. But they decided to stay in the Army, and they turned the Pan Am entity over to somebody else. Meanwhile, Tripp had gotten involved in, in a couple other organizations, one called Colonial Airways, and then which he got fired from. And then he, with his wealthy investors, started another small airline for the purpose of bidding on one of these airmail contracts. Well, three companies, including the Pan American, were all bidding on this Latin American mail contract, and they decided to merge their efforts. And, and Tripp subsequently became the, like the managing partner of the thing. And that became... Finally, Pan American Airways. The Airmail Act of 1925 was the 
the game changer to make Pan Am and any airline profitable. Why was airmail so important to the U.S. government at that point, particularly to to Cuba or well, South America? Airmail was important, but but I think there was also some foresight involved because that was a way of of promoting commercial aviation and and and, and actually beginning to build an, an airline network in that country. Other countries just openly subsidized their airlines. Britain certainly did, and in, in, in Germany and France. But the U.S. didn't have that 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 culture. Mm-hmm. But they were able to subsidize airlines through airmail, and and that was one way of, of 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 developing an industry like aviation in the United States. Juan Tripp always had his sights on on international routes from the get go. Airport infrastructure was not present in many of these countries. He had to find a way to access uh, these international routes and that meant flying boats using flying boats and so he he went to uh, russian immigrant immigrants igor sikorsky who had built actually a flying boat in russia uh, the former soviet union back uh, before the revolution even and then he immigrated to new york and was basically arrived with no money, taught uh, mathematics and astronomy to, to students to kind of make a living, and in the meanwhile perfected his designs for flying boat model, uh, flying boat aircraft. His, his first big successful airplane wasn't a flying boat in, in, in Russia. It was a big, great big biplane transport called the Ilya Mormets. Mm-hmm. At the time, the biggest airplane in the world. And mind you, he was a, he was a kid then, in his early 20s. And then in World War, as Russia got in World War One, the the Mormets became a, a, a important bomber. But when he got back to the when he got to the United States and was broke, and he started working on these uh, seaplane designs. Interestingly, one of his patrons, and then a vice president of the Sikorsky Aircraft Company, was Sergei Rachmaninoff, the mm-hmm. musician. He was a good friend of Sikorsky's, and uh, he they, he went through some rough times. They they had a a model called the S-39A that uh, crashed on a golf course and mm. would have put him out of business, but there was Rachmaninoff to support him. But it was the S-38, a twin-engine amphibious airplane that with two 400-horsepower engines that attracted Juan Tripp's attention, and uh, he there, then drew Sikorsky into his circle and uh, actually bought a fleet of S-38s. And so the S-38 uh, was actually able to either land on water or on land. That's right. And it was perfect for Pan Am's Latin American roots because it could, it, you know, there, there were runways there, but not many. And there were uh, seaplane ports where they could splash down in the water. And, and, uh, and In fact, uh, Charles Lindbergh, with the trips along, flew one of these S-38s all, all down through, uh, through some of these newly acquired routes down through Central America. But the very first route from Key West to Havana was flown mm-hmm. in what aircraft? It wasn't even a Pan-American airplane. The, fir- the very first one was a guy named Cy Caldwell who had a float plane b- because the, the uh, airfield that they were going to take off from in Miami was still muddy from the rains and they couldn't get air- they couldn't take off. In the, in the, uh, it was a tri-motor Fokker is what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they had maybe three of these. To, to initiate the airmail route. But uh, when they finally put the, uh, were able to go into service, they, that's what they flew with the tri-motor Fokker back and forth between Miami and, and Havana. And then later on further into them, down through the Caribbean. 
Trip quickly realized that uh, navigating over water uh, over any distance was not an easy task, and uh, particularly in a flying boat. Because of that, he recruited a young radio engineer from RCA, Hugo Luderitz, uh, as an advisor. So you had Sikorsky uh, help uh, collaborating with Trip on uh, new, uh, on existing and future aircraft models to enable his uh, his visions of international transport. You had Hugo Luderitz, who uh, Trip lured away from RCA, which was a premier company at that time, to research uh, ways in which radio could be used for navigation. And, of course, Lindbergh, had we, who we, he we'd mentioned. Uh, and uh, basically, Luderitz came up with something known as the Adcock Direction Finder. Luderitz didn't invent the Adcock Direction Finder, but... Uh in fact, a, a British, a Brit named Edcock invented it. Right, and it was in its initial stage was 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 a short range thing, and more suitable for for for, for boats doing short haul stuff. But uh, over a course of about seven years, Luteritz kept kept fiddling with this and 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 changing, in, in, uh, increasing the frequency. It started out as a very low frequency transmitting device, and. He was able, in increments, to raise the range. Initially, only had a range of about 30 miles, and he got it up to 100 miles. And then by the time, years later now, by the time Trip is ready to go across the Pacific, Luteritz swore that this thing would have a range of 1,200 miles. And, in fact, it did. What it amounted to was, a, was a, two, four very tall antennas, like telephone poles, and each one radiating a different frequency in a different quadrant and this signal would be received by an inbound air, aircraft, and they could identify their bearing to the station that way. That's a very very rough explanation of how it worked, and it did work. So initially, by the mid-30s, within basically, what, six or seven years of its formation, Trip had taken Pan Am from one mail route to basically dominating the whole of, the, of South America on its routes. And uh, But his ultimate sights uh, were set on the... The North Atlantic. That's where the S-42 came in, and it was designed specifically for that mission. The S-42 appeared in 1934. That was the first real ocean-going, ocean-crossing uh, flying boat in the world. And when, when that came along, it changed all of it changed the game for everybody. It, it propelled the United States, and particularly Pan Am, into the forefront in, in commercial aviation. There was no other airplane in the world that could... Uh, Fly that far, that 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 fast, that high, flying boat, I should say. That was Tripp's intent to to fly it to uh, to Europe. Well, at that time, Britain had no, no no airplane that was even close to that to that category, and through a lot of national pride, refused to allow Pan American or any U.S. airline landing rights in the U.K. until they had uh, equipment that would do the same thing which so, is a long ways off. So they were looking for reciprocal uh, landing rights. In other words, uh, if they were going to grant us landing rights, uh, they expected reciprocal landing rights. And because <laughs> because they didn't have a ball to play with, they just said, hey, guys, I'm going home. You're not going to play yeah. my game. Yeah, that, that, game. that's a good expression because they, uh, for whatever reason, they, the, 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 the British were, were a generation behind in the development of the flying boat. They were suffering a huge depression, just like the United States was. And so industry was really in a, in, a, in a slump in the UK. But more than that, they didn't have the, uh, the aviation competitive industry 
like we had in the U.S. They didn't, they didn't have a Douglas competing with a Boeing, competing with a, with a, with a Lockheed, uh, with a Sikorsky. Uh, they, had, they basically had one manufacturer for, for, for that category of, of aircraft. That was uh, the Short Brothers Company. Uh-huh. And, they made, and they made some really old-fashioned flying boats. And about the mid-30s, they, they, they came up with a flying boat called the Empire Flying Boat, which is a beautiful machine. About the same size as the, uh, well, maybe the China Clipper or the S-42. But it was much clunkier. It was heavy. And, of course, it's probably aptly named because it was built to serve the empire. Mm-hmm. And that didn't include the western, the, the northern hemisphere. They, they used it to, to uh, hopscotch down across Africa and through the Middle East. And they had much less interest in flying across the Atlantic. In fact, as late as 19, Sir Arthur Gouge was their chief designer. And as late as 1934, he came up with a new flying boat design that was a biplane that uh, looked like something the Wright brothers had built. So let's talk about the difference between the S-40 and the S-42. The S-42 was a was a giant leap up compared to the S-40? The Sikorsky oh, yeah. S- yeah. It was a generational leap. It really was. Okay. And, and, I mean, the, the S-40 was, was a short-range airplane. It, 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 it it was never intended to be an ocean-crossing airplane. S-42 just broke all the broke every record in in the uh, in this category when it came out. There's no doubt that Trip would have opened up the North Atlantic Great Circle routes if it had not been for the fact that the British weren't uh, going to agree to landing rights uh, because they were not able to reciprocate. And interesting, you mentioned that although Britain was suffering from a depression, as we were in the in the U.S. Uh, Pan Am, paradoxically, was profitable. You write that with the increase in passenger and mail revenues afforded by Sikorsky's flying boats, even at the height of the Depression, the airline would continue to show profits. I mean, that's pretty amazing. The people that flew on the airline, the passengers paid a lot of money for that. And so that that part was kind of made them separate from, from the other people who suffered from the Depression. And, and, and they still had the mail subsidy, which was generous. Uh, particularly the uh, the international mail subsidy. So initially, the passengers that were flying uh, to South America were basically in the millionaire class. You would say they were high, they were high rollers. High rollers. Okay. There, there was a great movie made back then called Flying Down to Rio, and I think Fred Astaire and all those people. But in some silly scenes, they had. But it was filmed a lot of it on the S forty. Flying down to Rio, and these people dancing on the on the on the wing on the top of this thing, but uh, basically it was a very glamorous uh, transport for. Uh, they weren't jet setters in those days, but they were the 1930s equivalent. So basically, Trip uh, was looking for an ocean in which to cross uh, with this new uh, S42. He, you, you write to the astonishment of his own directors. He announced that Pan Am would cross the world's widest ocean the Pacific at its widest part. Vast stretches of empty ocean lay between the tiny island stepping stones that formed the 8,700-mile route to Asia. The segment from California to Hawaii would be the longest commercial air route ever attempted, and beyond Hawaii, safe havens would have to be found on the atolls of Midway Island and Wake Island, and then farther west, only Guam and the Philippines were presumed were presumed to be satisfactory since the U.S. Navy had already established operating bases there, you write. Tell us about his announcement to the executives that he wanted to cross the Pacific. 
And uh, well, that, go ahead. That, that was the, that was the one of Tripp's traits. Also, the the, the, the shock effect. He he loved to spring spring announcements like that on his on his on his board. But mind you, his board was pretty pretty much hand picked. Uh, wealthy guys, Yale classmates, and such. Anyway, so they were used to this. But but this was after he had already been rebuffed uh, in his attempts to cross the North Atlantic. It just wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. because of the, the British intransigence in this matter. And uh, and he had already also uh, entered a contract with Glenn L. Martin for the uh, M130 flying boat, which was a big step up from the S42 which he would have put on the North Atlantic route if that had been feasible. But now he had these new airplanes coming and no place to go. So he's, and, and there's this mythical story of Tripp standing there with his, with his pipe in his mouth, looking at his globe and his finger coming to this little spot in the Pacific, which is Wake Island. And there's uh, probably a little bit of truth to that, but there wasn't actually much, much other choice. It's only two, two and a half miles of sand spit, but, but, it was, it was about the only game in town was stopping at Wake Island in en route to the to the Far East. And, so uh, so you write that uh, Wake Island offered the biggest challenges of any of the potential stops uh, because yeah. there was no habitation, no shelter, not even fresh water. Uh, since 1899, Wake Island had been claimed as a U.S. trophy uh, since the American the Spanish American War, uh, the, and the island itself is a summit of an undersea mountain, uh, which basically only rises 12 feet above sea level. It had a lagoon with hundreds of protruding coral heads, each of which could basically yes. cut through the the hull of a fragile duraluminum airplane such as the S-42. The curious thing, if I'm, you know, I know from the documentary Across the Pacific in which you were, were interviewed, I remember watching that sequence in that, it was a great documentary, uh, and just being amazed that you know Trip basically took a gamble. He knew that he had to that he would have to use Wake Island, but he was even unsure that that uh, any aircraft would be able to land in its lagoon. W- was he as unsure as that documentary uh, kind of portrays, or or w- oh, he, was he confident yeah, I, that he could do it? I, I'm pretty sure that he'd been he had good information. That, that it was feasible. He'd already sent people out there on the, to to check out the feasibility of this, and it turned out to be quite a quite an adventure and and a much huger project than they expected, because they had to blow up all these coral heads that were in the lagoon. Even then, it was still just barely long enough to accommodate a flying boat. But I, but I think he had pretty good information before he committed to it. But when you said he took a big gamble, that was Trip's nature also. He, he, he took a lot of big gambles in his career, and 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 with the airline, and some of them worked better than others, but um, that one was was his biggest gamble at the at, uh, up to then. So, what was the business case for a Trans-Pacific route between Hawaii to the Philippines at that time? Once again, airmail was the big deal, and then again, high rollers were willing to pay a lot of money for a. Uh, a ticket to to the far east up until then you you had to book passage on a on a steamship so why you across it it'd take you know over a month sometimes to get from the west coast to the far east now you could do it in 6 days and that was worth a lot of money 
to, to passengers. And if you had any business at all to do in the Far East, that was the way to go. And uh, his flights, I think, were, were full every time. You also note that the Navy and the uh, Roosevelt administration were just all too eager to help Pan Am establish a presence in the Central and Western Pacific. Well, basically due to the fact that the Japanese had kind of uh, made that their own stomping ground after World War One, And these were... During the, and during the 1930s, uh, the tensions between the U.S. and Japan were growing. And the Navy, the Navy was quite happy to see a, a facility, particularly a seaplane base, being developed in Wake Island because it was right in, in, in the middle of where uh, they wanted to have some, some surveillance over the Japanese military out there. And the Navy already had an installation on Midway, a cable station, and they had a facility in, in, in Guam, and they were quite happy to have somebody use it. But then uh, in, by May of 39, uh, you note that Pan Am made its maiden scheduled vo- uh, flight with a Yankee Clipper. So by May of 1939, Boeing had introduced uh, its own flying boat, the B-314, uh, which Pan Am used to make its uh, first scheduled uh, maiden uh, Yankee Clipper, Clipper flight from Manhasset Bay, New York, to Marseille, France, via mm-hmm. the Azores and Lisbon. It, it took uh, five years after Pan Am was ready to cross the Atlantic before it had a new uh, Boeing uh, 314 that could make the journey. Is that, is that basically it? The, 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 M, the M-130 could have made the journey too, but not in this, not the same way the B-314 could. Right Now, mind you, this, th- this came about after the British had finally negotiated with the U.S., and they, now they had a reciprocal agreement. And, and the British made a few faltering flights with their great big uh, short flying boats, but uh, they never did have a, a, a scheduled North Atlantic uh, trip like, like the U.S. did. But the, but the B-314 had the capability to carry a huge load of passengers and, and go nonstop uh, eastbound across the the Atlantic. It was a, 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 a double-decker airplane. It was a, it was a great big uh, flying hotel. So there, so there, they were not only carrying mail, but there was uh, there were passengers on board. Oh, oh yeah, and they had sleeping berths. It, and you talk about high rollers. That was really a, a high rollers trip. Uh, but then you write that by the 1940s, certain statistics were incontrovertible. No hold-bottomed water-based commercial airliner. It could match the cold efficiency of a DC-4. Pan Am, uh, BOAC, and Air France had all smelled the kerosene of the coming jet age. That's pretty amazing by the late 40s. They would realize that. By the late 40s. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Then you write that in 1955, Tripped placed orders with both Douglas and Boeing for jet aircraft, foregoing a next-generation propeller-driven aircraft like the Lockheed Constellation or the Douglas DC-7. Is that true, or did I thought Pan Am also operated Constellations and DC-7s? But they did. Tell us about the engine upgrade that that Trip negotiated with Bill Allen and the U.S. military, which enabled him to get Pratt and Whitney to let him use a larger engine on the 707, thus enabling the 707 the range it needed for a transatlantic Great Circle flight. Again, this this was a was a classic Trip. Uh, coercion, uh, playing one side against the other, because uh, Trip way ahead of everybody else had had smelled the jet age, and, and, and in fact, 
uh, the British had produced the first jet airliners, the Comet, which wasn't very successful. But but Tripp was entranced by this thing and ordered three of them right on the spot. Never took delivery of them because it was a bad airplane. It wasn't, and it was never a transatlantic airplane. But meanwhile, he knew that Boeing was developing a, a four-engine jet for the Air Force called the Dash 80, which would, would become the 707. And it, it, Douglas had such a thing on their design boards. And so Tripp immediately began pressuring Bill Allen at Boeing to build this thing on a scale that would be a transatlantic airplane. And uh, Boeing had no interest in doing that. For one thing, they didn't have an engine for it. The little J-57 engines were not, would, would never be enough to propel an airplane with enough fuel to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and Douglas pretty much said, said the same thing. So then Tripp starts uh, uh, shopping around, and he plays one side against the other. Finally, the, the, the big problem then was the engine, so he goes to Pratt & Whitney and tries to get them to, to uh, produce for him on a commercial airplane, which he didn't have yet, uh, this J-75, a much bigger engine, which would be enough to propel a big ocean-going 707. And they fought him back, fought him back. And then he threatened to go to Rolls-Royce for such an engine, which put the pressure back on Pratt and Whitney. So they caved in and gave him the engine. So with this engine in hand, he goes back to Boeing and says, uh, I got the engine and you can build this, this bigger airplane. Well, Boeing called his bluff and turned him down. So then he goes to Donald Douglas, who hadn't yet spent a bunch of money on a prototype. So Douglas agreed to, to sell him airplanes with that engine. And then... Tripp announces this to the public, which suddenly puts all this pressure on Boeing, who sees themselves about to lose out in the race to build a transatlantic airplane. So they cave in and give Tripp exactly what he wanted, hmm. 707. But then, uh, paradoxically, you write that the arrival of Boeing's jumbo jet, uh, the 747, basically coincided with the beginning of the airline's decline, even though the 747 wouldn't have been built if not for Juan Tripp's insistence. Well, that's correct. The uh, by the time there was another trip gamble, and what he, he of course he initially wanted supersonic transports, and he, he wasn't going to get that. And so the next interim step he, he thought would be the so-called everyman airplane, one that would would, would, would not just be for high rollers. He would carry hundreds of passengers uh, with uh, for low price tickets, and that would be something of the scale of the seven four seven. There's another story about how he bullied Bill Allen into building that. But he had these on order in the late 60s, about the time he retired, 1968. And about the same time, uh, passenger traffic very imperceptibly started dropping dropping off. And the U.S. economy started dropping off. And the whole world was starting to enter, enter a recession. And Tripp's uh, rationale for this big airplane that carried two and a half times as many people as a 707 was that international travel was going up 17% a year. Mm. Well, by the time the 747 arrived, it wasn't going up at all. It was going down. And so about the time this, and and Tripp had already put the the airline into huge debt to build this airplane. And plus Pan Am then became the the, uh, experimental test bed for the airplane because it had a lot of problems. Every new airplane does. Right. And, and, they, they had to build all these facilities to, to, to accommodate this this huge airplane. The engines gave them constant trouble. The airplanes almost never came home with all four engines running. And uh, the, one crisis after it followed another, 
uh, oil, an Arab oil embargo in 1973 raised the price of fuel by 300%. Mm. And all these calamities all arrived at the same time as, as a 747. But, it, was, it, was a, it was a trip gamble that in this case didn't, didn't pay off. But then you also write, the, as you mentioned, that by the time Tripp announced his retirement as chairman of the board in 1968, Pan Am's fleet of Boeing 707s, not the 747s, but the uh, 707s uh, were cruising the Atlantic only half full. And, and, and that is what I was saying about the, the U.S. economy was already beginning to slip then. And people weren't spending as money as much money traveling, but the seven four seven was already on its way. It was only a, it was already in production. That was it was a fact. But what's interesting and, is that uh, you you mentioned that the early, I guess the seven forty seven dash one hundreds, the early incarnation of the seven forty seven, the engines were not as reliable as the later dash two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, uh, because by the time the seven forty seven was retired uh, from commercial service or uh, uh, by the time the 747 was, uh, uh, Boeing basically stopped manufacturing the 747. It was looked upon as a dream airliner, a, a dream aircraft, which uh, airplane, which you know, extraordinarily reliable. So, uh, so Pan Am did not benefit from the 747's later reliability. Uh, not so much. I mean, Pan Am had to pay the bills for solving all these problems. The the, the big one being the Pratt and Whitney engines with their compressor stall problems. That got solved, but it took a lot of re-engineering to do it. Very expensive re-engineering. And then, and then by the time they got those things solved, Pan Am couldn't really afford to buy the, the later iterations of the 747. They bought the 747 SP, which had a pretty short life. But uh, and, what, never, and what was the SP? It was a shorter version of the 747 that carried more, it, 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 more fuel efficient. Mm. And uh, could go a much longer range. They call it spe- uh, I think special performance was the SP. It was the first one that could go nonstop from New York to Tokyo, and but it had a short life because in a short while the the 747s engines and, and and design was upgraded enough where the regular 747 two, the 200s and 300s could also make the trip nonstop, and the SP became sort of a of a relic. Nobody wanted it. But interestingly enough, uh, in the early 60s, uh, actually in early 1963, uh, Tripp uh, placed uh, options on six uh, Concords, which were mm-hmm. manufactured as a joint partnership uh, between the British and the French. And there's a Actually, you can go online on YouTube. I, and I sent you, uh, Bob, a, a clip of this, uh, of uh, the late President Kennedy making several candid uh, phone calls <laughs> uh, to the yeah. uh, late uh, Vice President Johnson at the time and to members of his cabinet complaining that, that he felt betrayed by Tripp um, for mm-hmm. placing this order before the U.S. When, when the U.S. was just about to announce its own uh, supersonic transport SST initiative. Uh, can you tell us the backstory behind that? Well, that's another trip coercion that sort of backfired on him. But, but I don't know that he ever really wanted Concords, but he did. He he ordered them anyway, knowing that this would put pressure on the U.S. government to proceed with with, with their own design. But he either deliberately or accidentally let the word leak out about the Concords in advance of Kennedy's big uh, dramatic announcement that that the U.S. was going to do this, and uh, which. Uh, 
forever made made him an enemy of the of the uh, of Kennedy specifically and 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 more generally the Democrat uh, next Democrat presidents. J- Johnson didn't like. I mean, Kennedy's always kind of hated Trip anyway. This goes all the way back to old Joe Kennedy in the '30s. That carried on to to Jack Kennedy, and then certainly to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who did no favors whatsoever for Pan Am or for for Mr. Trip. Why were there such bad blood between Trip and the patriarch of the Kennedys, uh, Joe Kennedy? Well, Joe Kennedy tried to bring in the '30s, tried to bring all the airlines under under one one. uh, one big governing body. He succeeded in doing that with the ship lines, and he wanted to do it with the uh, with the airlines. And Tripp had enough political clout to thwart him. He, he, he spoiled that plan for, for Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy had a long memory. He, he, he also uh, he was a solid Democrat, and and uh, one Tripp was, was was a pretty outspoken Republican. So, in other words, Joe Kennedy was in the Roosevelt administration and had tried to. Put the uh, the the existing airlines under one regulatory body, uh, and and Trip through his political influence uh, foiled that plan, and that's the that that's was correct. the reason for some of the bad blood, uh, and then obviously this Concord uh, issue didn't help. But interestingly enough, uh, even Eisen even uh, the uh, former FAA administrator in the Eisenhower administration, as far back as uh, 1959 has suggested that the U.S. Uh, spend $2 million researching SSTs. And, you know, right. uh, Boeing did a study in the early 60s. There was a lot of talk about SSTs. Interesting, though, interestingly enough, uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, told Tripp uh, that he didn't think the SSTs would be economically feasible, which he, proved, which he was proven right with the Concorde. But I always thought, as somebody who was growing up in the 60s, I was fascinated by, by the idea of having a global network of SST transports that uh, the U.S. gave up too quickly on solving the problems related to the SSTs, and it just swept the damn things under the rug. I, I didn't understand that. What about you? You were actually well, flying during that period. Yeah, well, first of all, starting with Trip, he, he, that, that to him was the future. I mean... Uh, it's a natural extension of his vision is, is, to, is to have these uh, network of supersonic airplanes and after that, spaceships. But uh, the problem was they, they were at a stage of technology where a, a single manufacturer like Boeing or Lockheed or, or, or Douglas couldn't, couldn't do that by themselves like they did the 747 or the 707 or, or any single big leap in, in, in technology. This required a, a national sponsorship. And nothing like that had ever been done in the United States. Uh, mind you, the Concorde was a collaboration of the, of, of the French and the British governments. That was taxpayer money that built those. And nothing like that had been done in the U.S. And it, it really ran against the grain in Congress, particularly uh, a senator named William Proxmire, who saw this as a big boondoggle, spending taxpayer money for, for, the, for these corporations to to build something that only rich people could fly in, and it, it, they they passed it, and then and then and then cut a lot of the funding for it, and then eventually killed it all together. What was it like? Actually, you were there during the heyday of of, of Pan Am, and uh, ABC actually did a series called Pan Am, which aired for one season, uh, which you mentioned in the pre-interview that that you had an involvement. 
with uh, the that uh, Pan Am show, uh, which I actually watched on Amazon Prime. Uh, now you you can it actually aired on ABC, the ABC TV network in the U.S. in 1994. Uh, it was a period piece, uh, which begins with the first Boeing 707 service from Idlewild Airport to Paris. Did I get that right? Was it? Idle was it Idlewild or was it Kennedy by Idlewild, that point? Idlewild, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, uh, it was not named Kennedy until after Kennedy was uh, was assassinated. Right. I don't think. You know what was it like? To, first of all, what was it like to just to be a pilot walk down the street in Manhattan in your uniform? Uh, there's that scene from Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio impersonating a Pan Am pilot, a Pan Am captain, <laughs> <laughs> and he's basically treated like. A celebrity and every woman he meets, you know, wants to take him to bed immediately. So, was it really like that for you guys? Well, that it's it's, it's a it's a little exaggeration, but but uh, we thought we died and gone to heaven when we first landed at Pan Am. With were uh, yes, we were treated like celebrities. I remember uh, ch- checking in for a trip. You go to you get to the, to the to the airport there at San Francisco. There was a little cart with your flight number on it. You put the bag on it, and you didn't see the bag again. Until you entered your hotel room in London or Paris, or your wow. destination, and and uh, they, they they treated us like like royalty, and it was we're kind of astonished. She was coming coming right out of the military when and, and uh, the the uh, airline was staffed at least half the flight. They all the flight attendants were all to, to be hired in those days. were were single, were good looking, uh, they spoke a foreign language. About half of them were foreign nationals, and. Uh, it just couldn't have been sweeter, and, and yes, we yes we were treated well. And oh, that sounds like quite the life. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you you actually were a consultant on this uh, series, uh, Pan Am, and you had some disagreements with them. What, what, for the people who have actually watched the series, I I've, I've almost finished it. And I love it, but it may it may not be historically accurate, but it's compelling uh, TV. Yeah. What what problems did you have with actually? The- well, I can assure you, most of the pilots who former Pan Am pilots who saw it did not like it. Ah. But, uh, and, and and I had written a treatment for a for a, for, for that kind of a series that that that, that uh, lost out to this ABC series. So I served as a as a as a consultant to the producers in the in the first couple of episodes, and and I could see where, where that was going. I didn't like it at all. It didn't depict. The, the the crew uh, mindset or the or the or the or the atmosphere at all in the in the 60s and uh, it, it, I was hoping it would be a period piece like you said it, 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 to me it was not a period piece it didn't reflect the culture the uh, the captains all looked like teenagers in there 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 was none of the the cockpit uh, call it conflict con- cockpit counterculture that used to go on where we had these World War II sky gods. Versus we uh, we new hires with longer haircuts and 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 uh, they they all a lot of them chain smoked and and uh, most of us didn't and, and it, 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 none of that was dep- depicted at all in the in the series. And so a sky I mean, ABC, got, t- ABC right. telling me the producer saying, "Oh no, we can't show uh, we don't show people smoking here because it sets a bad example." <laughs> <laughs> and and so a sky god, I guess the original sky god for a Pan Am sky god would be Ed Music, M U S I C K, who was the captain on one of the That's original right. flying boats uh, that was crossing the Pacific. 
he was kind of very laconic. He did not really have a colorful personality, but very meticulous and, a, and an excellent pilot. Uh, so what is your definition of a sky god? Well, uh, it applies to all those guys from Ed Music's era. He was the first sky god, actually. He's the chief pilot and, and the first one to, to fly the China Clipper, first one to fly flying boats and all that. But when we started as co-pilots in 65, most of the captains we flew with were had been flying boat captains, some of them, the, the senior ones. Uh-huh. And uh, somebody came up with that name, Sky Gods, because of their attitude. They they were given the title back in the in the day, Master of Ocean Flying Boats, and that stuck with them. And they they acted like masters of ships at sea. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't me who gave them that title, but it stuck. And thereafter, they became known to everybody as, as Sky Gods. So by 1985, uh, sadly, Pan Am had sold its uh, Pacific routes in 18 planes to United Airlines for $750 million. What were, what were your thoughts when you first heard that? Well, I was shocked and, and hugely disappointed. I think everybody was. And the rationale for it, 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 it a CEO named Ed Acker we call Fast Eddie, was running the airline then and running it in the ground. We are losing money by the bushel load. And something had to go. We knew that. And uh, what, what he had done, while the, the, the employees had gone on strike, they were so resistant to Fast Eddie. But while this was happening, he was secretly in negotiating with United to sell the, the only really profitable part of Pan Am, which was the Pacific. And... Uh, it was, the saddest part was this was the, the, the one that one trip had founded had made the, with the China Clipper had made uh, made Pan Am famous and, and relevant in the world and is being sold. And without the Pacific, Pan Am would not be the same again. And uh, there, it, it was part of a pattern because we're losing so much money. They had to keep selling things in order to finance their losses. He'd gone through nearly $2 billion during his time as, uh, as CEO, the, the joke was that Pan Am was like a coyote caught in a trap, and it's chewed off three of its legs and it's still in the trap. And yeah. one of those legs was the Pacific. And I guess uh, we didn't really touch on this, but Ed Music, when he made his first flying boat flight from San Francisco to Hawaii, there was a huge crowd in San Francisco, which came out to watch the takeoff. I mean, it was like a huge event. And uh, to watch an airline that, you know, paved the way for, mm-hmm. you know, these inter- these long-haul international routes in, in such a daring fashion and captured the imagination of literally millions of people to sell off its uh, trailblazing routes to, to a rival airline for $750 million. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's sad. I agree. Yeah. But as most people probably don't realize, Pan Am was not set up. Uh, it didn't really have much alternative to its international routes because it wasn't set up as a domestic airline. Well, again, it was a political thing. And, and, and that's right. But that was okay with Trip because Trip saw Pan Am as the chosen instrument. And it was assumed that after World War II that, that Pan Am would be allowed to develop as, as America's uh, overseas airline but then but then it became political each successive president starting with uh, 
actually Lyndon Baines Johnson, began passing out international routes to uh, the domestic airlines, particularly those that belonged to their, their constituents. Johnson, particularly, was at being a Texan, really rewarded American Airlines and Braniff Airlines with routes right over the top of Pan Am. But all this time, Pan Am was denied domestic authorities. And again, this is political, and part of it was because of the, the enemies that Tripp had created over the years in, in Washington. And this, this, this continued with the presidents giving away uh, routes until Pan Am's competing with every single domestic carrier on its, on its uh, international routes without having a domestic authority, which was killing the airline. And then in 1978, the CAB passed a deregulation act, voting themselves out of existence and basically making it possible for any airline to fly domestic. So that should have been the salvation of Pan Am. Instead, our CEO then, a, a, a retired Air Force general named William Sewell, got into a very expensive uh, fight with, uh, I forget his name, the, uh, a, a Texas entrepreneur anyway, but over national airlines. And he kept running up the price, and he wound up paying uh, about a billion dollars to acquire this domestic airline, national airlines, which was about four times as much as it was worth. Actually, I remember it was Frank Lorenzo. And... Sewell wound up with this hugely expensive domestic package, which then he continued to dismember. When Pan Am should have been saved by having domestic routes, they, they sort of blew a great opportunity. And when you say national airlines, you actually mean the the airline named national here in the U.S.? Correct. Okay. Correct. So by the late 80s, Pan Am was really under duress. And to add insult to injury had a horrific tragedy with the Lockerbie bombing uh, over Scotland. And so did the, did the 1988 Lockerbie disaster in which bombs placed by Libya in a 747 Clipper cargo hold uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland, in which they, which blew up over Lockerbie basically also kind of finish off the airline. Yeah, that was the, I think the last nail in the coffin. There wasn't much, Pan Am could do to recover from that because um, after, I mean, if you remember, night after night, there was this picture on television and all the newspapers of this crushed Pan Am uh, fuselage with the big Pan Am logo on it smoldering in a Scottish meadow. And no passenger would go near a Pan Am airplane after that, P- particularly as this investigation dragged on. It never was clear for a long time what happened with the airplane just blew up or somebody put a bomb on it or why they put a bomb on it, but it, it just killed Pan Am's passenger listing. And then about the time they began to get passengers back in, then came the first Gulf War and everybody ran again from Pan Am. And that was pretty much Pan Am's death knell. When Pan Am sold its routes to Delta or Delta acquired the, its, its existing uh, routes, that was basically the end of Pan Am. It, it turned out that way because... Uh, in 1991, that's when that happened. 1990, 1991. Yeah. And uh, what Delta wanted was Pan Am's North American route. Delta had had suddenly woken up and decided they were falling behind the other, its, its big competitors, American and United, and reaching out overseas. And Pan Am already had this, this system in place with Airbus, Airbus is flying the North Atlantic. And so it made sense for Delta to buy that operation, which was about a third of 
Pan Am's fleet. They did, and the rest of the airline, most of the rest of the airline, then became what they call Pan Am Two, and it was it, it was based in Miami. It was mainly a, a Latin American operation, and and the deal was that Delta was going to continue to subsidize that and keep it going, and then maybe ultimately bring it back into the Delta fold. Well, one month into that arrangement, uh, Pan Am Two was losing money by the cartload, mainly because people still remembered the Pan Am logo in, in, in Scotland, but they also didn't worry about flying a, on an airline that might very well go bankrupt any day. And in a surprise move, Delta suddenly announced they would no longer support the airline. They're yanking the rug out, and Pan Am Two folded in early December of '91. But was it, was it literally? Know, it wasn't called Pan Am Two. That was just a kind of a internal designation. It, it, that, that's what we called it, but it was, it was yeah. still called Pan Am. Right. Yeah. When you think of Pan Am now, what comes to mind? Well, I think of still of space travel, of supersonic transports. That's what we were promised. That's what we thought was going to happen when we were hired. But looking back on it, I don't regret having chosen that, that airline. It was still the most glamorous airline experience I think anybody could have had. I, I met some of the most unique, fascinating characters. And I got to live in fabulous places all over the world. I lived in Hong Kong, Berlin, San Francisco, and uh, I wouldn't change that experience for anything. It was the uh, best part of my life, and uh, don't regret a bit of it. Bob, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Uh, absolutely. I, I, my, my name is on, is, is on Facebook, and also have a Facebook Robert Gant Books site. And my website is, is uh, gant.com, very simple, G-A-N-D-T. And my email, for all you out there, is equally simple, bob at gant.com. I would love to hear from you and uh, love to hear your comments. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Robert Gant, thanks for helping us better understand Pan Am and this fascinating chapter in aviation history. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>